everyone. Welcome to the Charvak podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is, and and I apologize in advance if I butcher her last name because uh, in India we pronounce things in a different way. So uh, my guest today is Catherine Perez Shaktam. I don't know how to get it right, so I apologize did? in it. I did, did get it right. Did I, I, right. I, Awesome. See, I do not want to ask you before we started. I wanted to take a risk. I was like, if I get it right, I get accolades. If I don't get it right, <laughs> I get brickbats. So, so I get get it right. So, Catherine is a research fellow at uh, the Henry Jackson Society. She's also a journalist. Uh, you can read Catherine's work in multiple portals, including the Jerusalem Post and. Catherine, in 2017, was the only Western journalist or a media personality to have granted an, to have been granted an interview with the now president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi. So, Catherine, welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So, as uh, everybody who must have clicked the link knows that today's uh, podcast topic is Islamism in Iran, and I don't want to get into defining Islamism because that we have done already in a, in a previous podcast uh, with another mem- uh, you know uh, person who, who had who I met through the Henry Jackson Society, Wasik Wasik. So Wasik ah. had uh, so Wasik had uh, explained uh, the the entire process of what Islamism is. But uh, as I was talking to you offline, Catherine, today our focus is on Islamism in Iran. Now, mm-hmm. if 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 I was to build from there, what are the underlying principles of Islamism from an Iranian perspective? Well, that's a really good question. Um, well, you, I have to take it back to the governance of the juries, which is, um, you know, the system of governance that um, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini decided to uh, bring to life, I would say. And a lot of it um, was based on his understanding and study of uh, pan-Islamism um, as expressed by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which is quite interesting. Um, now, obviously, you know, you have it's a very, it's a different iteration of Islamism because of um, you know the the Shia nature of it. It's a different school of thought within Islam, of course. Um, and the way that he conceptualized it, he wanted to have you know at the the very forefront, I would say, of, of the leadership, the government, uh, the overarching, I would say, um, bastion of you know keeper of Islamic tradition, Shia Islamic tradition, had to be for him a jurist, an imam, an ayatollah. Um, and that meant that everything had to go through him in order to bring to life, um, you know, this um, holy government that they're actually awaiting through the, you know, the, the advent of, uh, of Imam Mahdi. So what he tried to do was to precipitate um, the return of Imam Mahdi by creating or, or inventing um, his government here on earth. Uh, so it's quite interesting because he's he's basically basing his legitimacy on this ideal, um, you know, this uh, this promise that a man would come or return, depending on how you want to look at it, um, and bring justice to to the world through his you know system of governance. That he wanted to create that prior to his return, um, and that he would take ownership of this and and um, draw legitimacy from the stories and tradition of Shia Islam, promising you know the return of that man. Um, and kind of take it upon himself to imbue himself with, you know, this 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 power, this, this legitimacy. So it's quite interesting because it, in my mind, it's a form of theocracy. Um, you know, it's it's not too dissimilar from what the Pope 
uh, did very early days of Christianity in, you know, setting up the Vatican and, and deciding that the church would have an empire and rule over by virtue of, you know, uh, holy legitimacy. Now, in terms of what that means on the ground, uh, basically that all powers, you know, lead to him, um, that he appoints everyone and decides everything, and that basically people's only right is to, um, to submit to his will, but also any form of either aggression or criticism is actually understood as an act of apostasy and rebellion against God, um, which is quite interesting when you think about it, for any system of governance to actually um, you know, play the God card, as if they're the only one being able to interpret what is it that God wishes um, or how people should even conduct their life or, or you know, any decision that has to do with the government um, is somewhat linked to the expression of the, the holy. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Um, and I think that's the only difference. I think that when you look at Islamism, you know, the Sunni Islamism, at least the Muslim Brotherhood, it's expressed slightly differently. I think the claims they made are different because they don't claim holy legitimacy. They don't claim to be appointed by God, which is something that um, Khomeini may not have claimed, but Khamenei certainly is. He's not saying it directly. Um, but if, if you look at what happened just what, a week ago with you know, the cartoons that the Charlie Hebdo published, um, you know, the leadership came out in Iran saying um, that obviously they were not happy because you know, it's a criticism of the leadership but also that they understood that as being a violation of the sanctity of Islam. Um, and by doing so, you, you're basically saying that Ayatollah Khamenei um, is somewhat now Shia Islam and that any criticism of that, you know, equates to an act of apostasy, which is insanity to me, um, because I, I don't think that it's almost a cult of the personality now, because you, you're aligning this man, you know, on the level of um, not just, you know, prophethood, but, but actually, you know, the, the, the divine with a capital D, which I think is a slip. Um, and Sunni Islam cannot do that because, again, they conceptualize, um, you know, Islam very differently. The, the exercise of their faith does not allow for, um, you know, people to be put on, on the same level as, as, as God or even prophets. Um, so, yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting to see that there's been an evolution. There's a trajectory that is actually quite dangerous from... I would say, you know, regular Shia Islam, which is um, which is completely different than what Iran came out with, and and this slip towards this cult of the personality and the notion now that um, you know Khamenei is actually claiming the the, the status of uh, imamhood, prophethood, and, and now the divine. But that's fascinating because in that scenario, there's that is a huge deviation in the case of Shia Islam from Sunni Islam, because mm -hmm. in Shia Islam, uh, you are in 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 a very weird way doing the one thing that they don't like, which is kind of idolatry, because yes. they are the so. So I guess eventually all roads lead to politics and politics is, is about control and power. So whatever gets me power and in in societies that are not secularized in the classical sense as Western societies are, I guess this is the easiest way to stay in power. Because uh, if I was to look at Saudi Arabian society right uh, mm -hmm. now with, uh, with, with the developments that have been done under Mohammed uh, uh, Salman and... 
but the division in saudi society from whatever i have understood has always been clear there are some things that the monarch handles and there are some things that the grand mufti handles and they're very mm-hmm. clear actually on most issues they don't have any conflict with each other i mean mm-hmm. now with the new prince rising i think the prince is entering the mufti's uh, domain about social issues and i think they might face problems mm-hmm. but in iran like what is this demarcation or is there any no there's not there's not that's the thing so i mean on paper they tell you that there is uh on paper the government is is supposed to be independent um you know from from the leadership but the leadership is there to ensure that there's no deviation from you know the the islamic path but in reality what that means is that you know Khamenei can you know micromanage if he wants to um but what is also quite interesting in iran is that you have you you have a system within a system so when you know ayatollah khomeini very early on in the 19 you know um 1979 understood that in order to secure the longevity of of the Islamic revolution he would have to create a structure that would protect that sole purpose would be to protect uh, the leadership so you know and by the leadership i mean the ideology underwriting the the Islamic republic and and this Islamic revolutionary movement um so, and then you know came to be RSGC um and as as you know the year went by and RSGC gained a lot more power because they had to be given power um that means that RSGC came to infringe onto the the political space and also the authority of state representative including you know parliamentarians which is interesting because you know it's supposed to be a republic and so this you have elections obviously um but the power of you know elected um you know MPs for example uh even the president and ministers um is actually largely challenged by RSGC and that means that within every ministry whether it's defense or intelligence or the economy whatever it is you have a section that is being run by RSGC so they almost acting well, not almost they are acting as a shadow government but power true power lies with them so a lot of the time ministers cannot make decision unless they actually run it by uh, the 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 RSGC equivalent uh their counterpart which is again has led to this kind of like slip towards um you know fascism and authoritarianism uh in Iran um because there is no counterbalance there is no separation of power everything is been run by the leadership uh, from education to you know transportation everything uh, even the air they breathe um and there's nothing they can do um to reform it that's the thing and i think that's the current thing that you seeing played out right now in iran where people sometimes are arguing you know what about we reform the regime what about we make it a real republic what about this what about that it's impossible you can't do this because we are in in a it might be called the islamic republic of iran but there's nothing islamic about it there's nothing republican about it um the only word that is might be true is iran in that um and reforming this is impossible what you have to do is you know put it down and start over um because the constitution doesn't even allow you um you know to do anything that could be understood as again uh, an act of enmity against god and the person deciding that is khamenei so how do you go how do you go about reforming and also it would be quite silly for him to suddenly wake up one morning and say yes i've have absolute power in my country but today i feel generous i'm just going to share the love and give it back to the people he would never do that why would he hmm so i guess this takes me to the natural segue of what what happened in iran 
and what has been happening since then uh it all started with the the you know the tragic death of masa amini and mm-hmm. uh, so what the hell is this religious police who do they report to uh they report to the to the leadership um so the, like which the... leadership is so confusing <laughs> the leadership is is basically Khamenei so uh in this case maybe not him per se because obviously i mean there's only 24 hours in a day uh but you know people close to him so he has a very um you know he has advisors and he has a council um so they they would report to whoever is appointed you know to that specific task and then they report to Khamenei should they you know if there's a problem uh, or things are not happening the way that he you know he wishes them to happen so again he wasn't the one Khamenei wasn't the one that created the Marathi police that was Khomeini so he decided again early on um that he wanted to have the perfect islamic society and obviously uh that men controlling everything that women do think eat um you know and and everything else in between um and so he decided that in order to keep them you know on the program that the morality police would be created and that this force would go around the streets of of Iran ensuring that you know women are dressed adequately that means you know um, hair co- you know hair covering and the burqa i think uh, which is called a chador uh, in Iran and that people behave in a decent way so you know no drinking in the streets and you know that, that all that kind of thing so it's not just about the headscarf um but they have almost absolute power so that means that they can complete you know at their discretion either fine you or arrest you or beat you or do whatever it is that they wish to do on the day um and it's all justified because again if you challenge them uh they will argue that you're committing an act of an act of apostasy that you're challenging the leadership that you're acting against god's will um and that you know since you're challenging the quran they can do pretty much whatever it is that they want to you and that include the death penalty because an act of enmity against god in iran is passable of death so that tells you just how much power they had um and back in the 80s they used to go around in the streets of of iran beating people up and there was nothing that people you know people could do against it um now you know over the decades you know things had to change because of course you know iranians were um becoming a bit restless and arguing that they needed more freedom and that you know the, the this ruling on the headscarf was a bit um antiquated and that they wanted more freedom which Khamenei kind of conceded because he understood that he had to give them some freedom some some he had to give us something so he did uh but then came around uh Ibrahim Raisi who's um who's I would say I mean in my mind a radical um and obviously very conservative uh and so he decided to roll back on those reforms and to go back to the to kind of you know early islamic republic style of oppression uh and enforcing you know this this religious uh, diktat onto people um it didn't go down so well because obviously it's very difficult for people to be given you know certain freedoms and then for someone to come and kind of roll it back um especially with you know the the advance of social media and the fact that iranians um not only are quite a young population uh but also have access you know to again social media so they see how the world is evolving around them and um you know the rise of feminism um the notion that you know people have you know, religious freedoms and that also you could you know you could live uh within islam but not necessarily abide by antiquated rules that maybe they feel don't apply to them or that they don't want to follow quite simply um so you, you you've seen a backlash i think of that and also 
I think it's been a compounding of things. Um, it's not just about the, the you know, morality police. It's also about high unemployment, about corruption, about um, a lack of a future, really, that they could um, identify with. And again, I think that because Iran is such a young population, you know, this um, Generation Z, Z, as they're called, um, you know, they, there is a gap now between them and the regime. Uh, the regime has been unable to kind of project its agenda and its propaganda onto that demographic. Um, they're not buy, buying into it. They don't believe in it. Um, a lot of Iranians um, identify as atheists in reaction to, you know, this Islamism that has been pushed onto them. Um, and so they're just not buying the whole God argument. Um, and they want free. They want they want their own democracy. They're not quite sure exactly what that means yet in terms of, you know, would it be um, a constitutional monarchy? Would it be a republic? Would it be? It doesn't really matter for them at this point. What they want is to actually exercise freedom, have a discussion within the country about what would their democracy look like? Um, how do they want to be governed? Um, you know, and they want equality too. Iran is, is composed of a multitude of ethnic minorities, you know, from the Kurds to the Ahwazi to the Baluk, um, with very different, very different history, um, different languages, different uh, belief system, um, but they feel Iranian. And, and so they want to live together, but they also want to, they want to be equal before the law. They do not want to have a three-speed society, four-speed society, whereby Ahwazi are being discriminated against on the basis of, you know, their origins. Um, it's the same for, you know, Baluchistan. Uh, is the same for you know the Azeri region of of Iran or even the Kurds, um, and and Iran again you know this um, this elite leading the country has played um, you know the ethnic card has been very sectarian in this approach because of course Iran is majority Shia but also you know you have different faith uh, within Iran so you have Christians you have Jews all a very small minority now. Um, you have Zoroastrians you have Baha'i you have Sunni Muslims. Um, and up until, you know, the revolution, they lived, um, they lived, you know, quite happily together. Um, there was, you know, great respect between communities and, and I would say solidarity. Um, and they, they understood that, you know, they, they had a lot to gain from learning from one another and respecting each other's tradition uh, because they were, you know, first and foremost, Persian, Iranians. Um, and it's a shame that, you know, this, I, I feel that history um, is being rewritten that those people are not given the, the courtesy of their tradition um, and, and, you know, celebrating this history that they have um, and learning from one another, which for me is, is the most important thing is that, you know, we all are entitled to be different. Uh, it, it's about sharing those differences and, and actually find common grounds to then, you know, move society to the next stage. Um, it, this is not being done in Iran, which is why people now are just fed up. Um, they don't want to be divided. They don't want to hate each other. They don't, they don't want religion to come between them because they have thousands of years of history. Iran is a very old country. Um, and I think that what you see is, um, I would go as far as to say that you, you could see like a, a renaissance in Iran, um, you know, the, the likes of which, you know, obviously happened a long, long time ago in the West. Um, but I think this is what you see happening in Iran. There's, a, there's an awakening. There's an understanding that they are more than what they were told. Um, and that they need to to look back in order to move forward. And when I say look back pre-1979 and, and kind of rediscover who they are at their very core, their identity, what makes them Persian? What is it that unites them as opposed to what is it that divides us so that I could hate on you better? Now, how how does one respond to maybe replies like this? Um, 
the West tends to, I'm just giving the devil's advocate position over here. So the West tends to overestimate uh, the tendency of other cultures and their love for freedom. That's point number one. The West in general speaks to elites in other societies and they tend to have a, a, a disproportionate image of what that society really wants. Iran really wants the religious police and they want Islam and they want religion in every aspect of their society. So how, how does one respond to something like that? I'm going to say, okay, so I agree to some of the statement that you made in the sense that, yes, the West speaks to the elite because it's impossible to speak to people in general. Who are they? Um, so, you know, you tend to speak to, you know, leaders within communities. And of course, they are the elite. But it doesn't mean they're not, they don't represent the people. Um, I think actually it's it's quite demeaning to say that, um, you know, the, the only the, the elite of a country, like the, the elite of a country came out, you know, for a reason that, you know, they made out of people. Um, and it doesn't, it's not like it, they are better. Um, I think it's just they, they have a platform that allows them, um, you know, to, to speak on behalf of their people. Um, also, when it comes to freedom, I would argue that everyone wants freedom. Uh, I think it's a natural state. It's a natural want uh, of any human being. How this is formulated, you know, vary depending on, on your culture and where you come from. Um, but I think that ultimately we all want freedom. How we conceptualize that freedom is, is quite different. Um, now, when it comes to Iran, I would say that, yeah, some people, you know, may, you know, project some of their own desires and agendas onto Iranians and say, oh, you know, this is what they want. Um, but I think that Iranians have done an incredible job at telling us what is it that they want. Uh, you have incredible, you know, very courageous, you know, activist people, um, both in Iran and, you know, within the diaspora, you know, telling us what is it that Iranians want. And I think that this is, at least this is how I see my job um, as an expert on Iran, is to actually you know, listen to what it is that they're saying, what they're telling me they want, and for me to carry that into my writing and my research. Because I, I, I do not want to, this is not my job to project what is it that I want to see in the country. Obviously, I have my own agenda and I want certain things to happen, mainly that Israel be left alone um, and that we return to the friendship that Iranians and Israelis had a long time ago. Well, not so, I mean, 43 years ago. It's not that long. Um, and that the region, you know, normalizes, you know, relationship with everybody and that, you know, we can live in peace and, and actually prosper. That's my agenda. But my agenda is not, you know, opposite to what Iranians want. They, they have said it time and time again. Um, again, I think they're doing a great job at telling us what is it that they want. Um, we just need to be careful in, in reading into it and, and not... Um, and again, allowing Iranians to formulate a solution for themselves as opposed to us trying to kind of implement uh, what we believe is the best thing for them to do, which most likely is better for us. Uh, we need to find a compromise. So again, I think communication, 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 uh, and also, um, I would say, a good dose of humility. Uh, the West hasn't been that great at doing that. Um, I think humility is important. Again, this is not our history. They're writing their own. We're just there to accompany them, empower them, and ensure that obviously their interests are aligned with ours. And if not, how do we find a common ground to work together? Because ultimately, the world has gone so small um, because of social media, because of technology, um, that we can't, you know, I can't oppress you and hope that I'm going to be okay. Uh, it's a case of we have, we're all in this together. We have to find a way to move forward together. Um, and that means, you know, we, ne we need to have some conversations, hard ones, 
we need to be honest, we need to be respectful. Um, and I think compassion would go a long way. Uh, and also drawing a line on history. So learning from it, you know, colonialism and all the horrible things that did happen in the past, learning from it, not forgetting it, but also agreeing that, you know, the son doesn't have to pay for the sin of his father. That we have to take it upon ourselves to forgive, move on, and, and actually make those hard choices that our children and the generations after that uh, would benefit from. So we're going to have to swallow the hard pill in order for the next generation to actually, you know, um, build from our sacrifice. And we would be foolish to think that we can't. We, we, this, this, is, this has to happen. Uh, you can't build a society in peace and democratic advancement if you don't, you know, sometime, well, you know, take it on the chin and just say, fine, it's going to suck for me for a little bit. But, uh, you know, my kids and their kids after that will be able to make the, the right choices because I've made the hard decision and I've paid the price for it. Uh, but now things are better. And, and we need to be courageous in doing this. You know what the problem in this entire process is? Uh, I, I always say this, especially because of America and its uh, its tendency to give people freedom and democracy in the, in the classic American way, which nobody mm-hmm. really likes. And then America says, no, trust me, you really need it. And then one fine day, Americans say, okay, we're going by. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But that's what I'm saying. I think we have an opportunity here with Iran to not do it again. We've done it in Iraq. We've done it in Libya. We've done it in Yemen to some extent. Uh, we've done it in Afghanistan um, because we try to export a model that works for the West. But the West has a very different history um, in, and demographic. You know, Afghanistan had, um, I don't want to say democracy uh, because, you know, they had a monarchy before that. But the way that the tribal system was set up was allowing, you know, for some degree of democracy and all we had to do was to build upon that so to use a tradition so something that is not foreign to them something that they understand something that is actually you know made in afghanistan build from it and accompany them in that process but we decided to say no no no, no. we're going to put our stamp onto it and then boom it's going to magically work it didn't um we tried to do this in iraq didn't work either um you know we, we tried in yemen didn't work either surprise surprise um, so I think it would be, again, it would be a mistake to kind of replicate also insanity, the very definition of insanity, to just keep doing it again and say, like, why is it not working? Why well, it didn't work, the, you know, like three times, five times before. Why would it work now? Um, I think, again, it's, it's from um, it comes from arrogance. It also comes from the fact that we're not listening to what people are telling us. Uh, and now there's, you know, this magic tool called social media where people actually have now the ability to tell you what is it that they think, what is it that they want. Um, we might just listen. Might be a good idea. Yeah, so uh, this one's going to be a little long-winded question because I have to set it up properly. So so sometimes what I notice in, in the discourse around democracies and other societies i uh, i find one one person writing a lot on this but obviously shadi hamid i don't know if you've read shadi's work uh, shadi works for the brookings institute in america shadi uh, focuses more on uh, the arab spring and, and that that side of the world, not on Iran. He's focused more on the Sunni world, not on the Shia world. So Shadi's, uh, I've I've had him on the podcast twice. So two two books, especially he talks about Islamic exceptionalism and 
the recent book uh, i forgot the name sorry shadi don't 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 get mad at me for that i'm very bad with book names but i've read both of them and i thoroughly enjoyed them so shadi's whole take was that i think the americans did not get the arab spring they thought here's this great moment of freedom this is what they want and what he he basically in his new book talks about the idea of democratic minimalism but basically some you know the idea of how democracies should function or how democracies could function is actually mm-hmm. very similar to what you're saying to be very honest which is which is refreshing to hear from one more person was that that look do not impose standard set models on different societies because they come from very different tribal past this is exactly what you're saying by mm-hmm. the way so i just so that's why i just wanted to share that you know there are others who who also and uh, shadi obviously is a, a practicing muslim he is an american uh, born mm-hmm. and raised in america but now i get to this quintessential problem when we have now the west is and these are my views you can reject them and disagree with them but i, I just like how we look at different cultures right i look at when i say the west you know the west is diverse point taken because the french are very different the germans are very different uh the united kingdom is very different america is very different canada is very different but in general the west does have some overlying principles that they agree on i mean they used to i correct myself they no longer agree on anything i don't know what they agree on anymore <laughs> and and so i'll give you a small incident there was when when this this entire freedom movement and revolt was at its peak in iran there was a iranian feminist i forgot her name again i really apologize for that she was on tv and there was this panelist i don't remember which channel it was because i barely watch media because i find it abhorrent i i genuinely find media abhorrent and 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 that person was talking down to that panelist all the time as if she doesn't understand iran and and and, and again why am i saying this the west is going through this this super uh, you know annuated or some guilt syndrome on steroids now the west has done bad things let let me be the first one i suffered as in my country my country suffered colonialism mm-hmm. but but there is a reality of colonialism and then there is colonialism and the guilt associated with colonialism on steroids where mm-hmm. you start in in that obsession because the western political landscape is changing especially because your media landscape and again i say it as clearly as possible is left leaning people may not like it it is mm-hmm. and the left is now completely allied with islamism mm-hmm. like it or not they are and this is true again, i agree i completely agree with that assessment that's very very true so how the hell does the west talk it's like what are they talking about in their own internal societies i i can tell you occasions after occasions where you can see their internal politics and you go like what and and then they talk like this outside it makes no sense to me like i'll give you an example justin trudeau talks one thing in his own country and then he says we're going to sanction iran look i i think i think the west suffer from you know cognitive dissonance um and also maybe uh, a bit of schizophrenia um i'm not you know i, I think we need an exorcism um and it's true <laughs> i'm not saying this you know to make people laugh but i genuinely i genuinely think so um 
we, you know, I like the fact that you mentioned, uh, you know, post-colonialism, because again, I think there's, um, there's this narrative that has been built over the decades that we had as a collective, the West had to make amends um, and somewhat fix the damages um, that we did, you know, to, uh, to the former colonies. And I would agree with that assessment. Um, the problem is we didn't actually have a conversation with the victims of colonialism saying, what would you guys like us to do to make it better? How can we, uh, you know, have a little mea culpa, but actually, you know, somewhat repair, you know, what is it that we've done? Is there, is there a way that we could, you know, work together? That hasn't happened. Uh, so I think we kind of took it upon ourselves to uh, to make people forgive us. And the way that we went about doing it, um, and, and I can only speak on Iran because, you know, I'm not an expert, for example, on India or, or, or other countries, is that we decided that we would use appeasement um, and containment as opposed to, you know, military interventionism that was, you know, um, again, understood as this, again, like, you know, once again, the West is is going after, you know, um, conquering territories and it's meddling and it's doing all these kind of things. Um, and I'm not saying that we were not, uh, but, you know, we definitely made a lot of mistakes. But I think that the, the worst one that we've made is like to actually buy into this agenda that Islamists was pushing because they, they very early on recognized that, oh, um, you know, the left is uh, trying, is, is actually talking about certain issues that we can identify with and that we could push onto them because we agree. And that means that we could, you know, be the Trojan horse and that we could slowly infiltrate and then kind of like redirect the narrative and use the guilt of post-colonialism to force people to not be critical of what is it that we're talking about, what we're saying and how we're kind of like pushing the agenda in a very different direction. Because, you know, the notion that the left, which is essentially talking about, you know, personal freedom and compassion and, you know, um, social issues, a lot of a lot more than I would say conservative, um, who are more interested in, you know, um, democratic advancement, security, um, and of course the economy. Um, you know, the, the left tends to be more socialist by definition, um, and so the Islamists saw, saw an opportunity there. Um, and and it's crazy to see that, for example, they have promoted the notion that you know women, um, you know need to be covered up and, you know, have to be told what to do and what to wear and where to walk and who to marry and all those kind of things. And the left is cool with it, even though the left is actually promoting, for example, gender equality and, uh, you know, um, sexual emancipation, for example, and, and all those different things. Those things don't work together. But for some reason, again, cognitive di- dissonance made it so that somehow it works. And, you know, you can have, uh, you can have people advocating and somewhat sanctioning genocide on one hand, because when Iran goes out and says death to America, death to Israel, this is an act of genocide. Um, even though, I mean, they haven't committed the act of genocide per se, but, you know, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, words turn into action. And I do believe that when you send those, you know, dynamics onto the universe, well, are you calling for, you know, the actions to kind of follow your words? So it's, it's an act of genocide for me. Um, it doesn't work with, for example, you know, anti-racism stance and, you know, um, you know, gen- again, gender equality and all those, you know, very social uh, issues that they kind of like, you know, championing. So how how did they come about, you know, making this alliance? It's, I think it's an interesting thing. Um, and, and I think that it is very cool um, the way that Islamists managed to kind of infiltrate and take over the left um, was that they had a very common enemy. 
the Jews. Anti-Semitism made it all better because they could agree on that. Um, and also, again, the notion that by hating on certain demographic, which they felt, you know, um, were troubling them in that they didn't fit the mold, um, they found common ground. And I think that this is a danger. This is a danger is that the, the, the left decided to talk about equality uh, by exiling a certain demographic. So it's not exactly equality for all, it's equality for the people that they appointed um, to, to have you know, the pleasure of being equal, but not everyone. But hey. So let's, talk, let's talk about anti-Semitism. Um, mm-hmm. I can relate to a lot of it as a Hindu Mm-hmm. Because uh, if uh, if one was to just you know open the pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and uh, the Guardian, the Guardian really loves the Hindu community. I have to say they they have some special love. <laughs> I think I think I think we have common ground here because they have special love for us too. Um, so <laughs> we are friends there. <laughs> I hear you and I get you. <laughs> so so what's with this? If if I remember mainstream media whether and again whether people like it or not uh, when i say mainstream media i mean left-leaning media fox news is just the exception and there are a few outlets globally that might be openly right-wing not that being right-wing is a problem i am a capitalist to the core i don't even hide it like i'm very open about it but the point is that by and large, the discourse, uh, whether it's academia, I mean, there are surveys in the West that show 95% of American academia, barring economics departments, or 90% are Democrats. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't even hide it. They say they're Democrats. They don't even say left wing. They say they're Democrats. So in, in such a scenario, where, I mean, if I remember reading old articles and from the archives from the 60s, the 70s and 80s. So where did this turn come from Israel being the root of all evil and anti-Semitism just being fine? Like it, it's just, it just flows off people's mouths like songs. Um, had, look, I think we had a few, I think we had a golden decade, um, you know, 60s, 70s, when it came to anti-Semitism, it was good because I mean, the, it wasn't, it was retreating. Um, people were not buying into it. I don't, I don't think it ever really went away, which is why I think we, this is where we felt. Uh, we felt to understand that less was not, you know, that did not equate to it's gone. Uh, it was still there. Uh, and I think that the Soviet Union, uh, even though it was one of the first countries to recognize Israel, did a really great job at promoting it, the, the, the whole anti-Semitism. And then obviously, um, I think that political development in the Middle East, you know, in relation to the various wars that Israel had to fight against its Arab neighbors, um, you know, the rise of pan-Arabism, pan-Islamism fed into it, uh, where people started to then, um, you know, conflate Judaism, the Jews, and of course, Israel. And I'm not saying that they are divorced because it's very difficult. I mean, as you know, as a Jew, I, I just find it's 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 part of my identity, even though I'm not Israeli. Um, you know, Israel is part of my identity, um, and I understand we have a very, I would say, visceral, organic, you know, relationship with Israel. And people have a very, I mean, kind of experience differently. 
Um, but I, I see personally, um, I see Israel as an extension and an expression of my identity and vice versa. Um, so I feel that whenever Israel speaks, um, you know, it somewhat relates to me. Um, I feel that everything that I do, um, you know, somewhat, again, uh, is always with the understanding that, you know, I Israel matters and needs to be protected. I'm talking about Israel as the country. I'm not talking about one particular political parties. Um, and, and and that obviously, you know, the, for me, it's, it's kind of, uh, I would say it's one of my buttons, you know, when people are quite critical of Israel, I tend to be quite territorial and not say we take offense, but, you know, I get a bit defensive and I, I just, I always want to make sure that the criticism is objective um, and well-meaning as opposed to being critical for the sake of just bashing on on, on Israel and the Jews by extension. Um, so it, it's it's a complicated issue. And I think that people jump onto it, uh, understanding that because the Jews are such, I would say, an exceptional people. And I'm not saying we better. I'm saying exceptional in the sense that our identity is very complicated to explain. Um, in that, again, we are an ethno religion. So, you know, our connection to the land of Israel is part of us. Uh, and, the, you know, and we are the land and the land is us. I would say that's, that's the easiest um, explanation that I could give. Um, and, and again, Judaism is not, is not a religion per se. You, you, we, there's no word religion in the Torah, for example. It's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a covenant that we have with the divine. So we don't call ourselves a religion necessarily. That, that's what people have called us and classified us as. Uh, but we don't necessarily identify with it. So I think that by this token, you know, we are quite exceptional in that we don't feel the particular mold. Uh, you know, we kind of sit outside and that has led to different problems. So now to go back to anti-Semitism, again, I think that geopolitical development, um, you know, Soviet Union, um, the way that the left was going, the conspiracy theories being pushed uh, onto the, you know, the world consciousness in terms of, you know, on the one hand, you had the Jews, you know, the, you know, those evil capitalists, um, you know, trying to control everything. And they are the very expression of, you know, colonialism. Um, but also the notion that, you know, people tend to forget that, for example, Israel was built literally on a Zionist leftist movement. Uh, I mean, the kibbutz um, are, you know, not too dissimilar to, to what, you know, Soviet Russia wanted to turn the country into. Um, and, and so, you know, th there was there was this notion, too, that Jews are victims, but they're also the one perpetrating the crimes and that, you know, they control the media, they control politics, they control everything that's going on in the world. And yet the Shoah happened. So, you know, how do you reconcile the two notions? Um, and so forever, you know, whether in the right or in the left, we were the pariahs, we were the people to be hated on. We were, you know, the, um, you know, together the victims and, and also the, you know, uh, the people wielding the axe. We were the, you know, the one that cannot be trusted. And I think that was fed into, you know, this leftist agenda, fed by this Islamist agenda, obviously, uh, because, it's, you know, it kind of fit, it fitted the narrative as well. Um, you know, this notion that the Jews had to be isolated, that Israel had to be delegitimized, um, that they had to reclaim their land, which is by essence, by the way, the very expression of colonialism, um, because they want to reclaim the land to take it away from us when we are indigenous to the land. But I'm not going to start on that conversation for another time. Um, but I think it's quite interesting. And, and the left put into it because uh, it worked and I think it played into a, a desire, I would say, like a yearning that it had to just be anti-Semitic. I think for them it was fun. It was it's part of the left identity. I'm, I'm sorry to say, and it's not. I'm not leveling a criticism at the left and I'm not saying that all leftists are anti-Semitic. I'm saying that the left as a movement 
um, the way that it's being expressed today is profoundly anti-Semitic. Um, but now they call it anti-Zionism. Because obviously using an, a euphemism is a lot better because nobody wants to come across and say, hey, I'm a racist. I don't like you. Um, so, you know, they will they will usually say, I'm not racist, but and they will find all, you know, they will find a lot of ways to rationalize, you know, their rejections of you. And I think that the, the, the Hindu community has suffered a, a great deal from that because I, I feel and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that whatever the Jews have suffered over the past decades um, you know, has slowly kind of like been passed on and the, 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 the formula being used to systematically delegitimize, criticize, isolate Jews um, and Israel has been literally copy-pasted and slammed onto you. Um, and you're suffering, you know, from the same thing where, again, you know, if India does anything, oh, the Hindu community is to blame. If the Hindu community is doing anything, oh, it's an Indian agenda, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, hello, we could exist separately from, from India, living in the diaspora. Um, but also, do we care about where we come from? And India is still a country that we hold dearly. Uh, yes, you should be entitled to do that. You can be British and celebrate your, you know, uh, celebrate India as your country of origin and say that, you know, the two are not necessarily, you know, um, incompatible. You, you could be both. It's, it's a thing. Like, you know, you could, you know, people are quite complex and they could, they could have, you know, various identities within themselves. Um, without, you know, being called a traitor or ha having an agenda that is nefarious to, you know, where, you know, the country that they live in, like, for example, Britain. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I just find it quite fascinating. And I think that we need to, to look into it a lot more. And again, have those very, you know, hard conversations. We need to be, to be honest. And it's um, because it's a dynamic. I think that we can't also run away from the fact that we may, when I say we, for example, you know, Israel and the world, the, the, the world jury, maybe, you know, had a, played a part into this. Maybe we could have done better in trying to, um, you know, to address the issue. Um, and I think that the best way I would say to defeat anti-Semitism um, is actually to stand proudly in our difference but, and our Judaism. However, it's, it's being expressed. I'm not a religious person. So I'm more a secular Jew. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I can't be proud of my history, my origin and my faith, even though I don't, you know, yeah, so you know what's fascinating? Another thing that Jews and Hindus, the, the two community have in common is that uh, you have a lot of atheist Jews. And like, I don't use the word atheist for myself, but uh, in India, in the Hindu culture, the disbelief was embedded in the structure itself. So there were different schools and there were the disbelieving schools. They were called Nastikas or Nirishwarwadis in Sanskrit, loosely translated as skeptics or disbelievers. So... So we have that in common that the two cultures actually understand each other is because they're okay with disbelief and they're fine with disbelievers inside their fold. Because Are you just saying the, that you guys are tolerant of other people? Is that what you're saying? It's a yeah, shocker. That's so, it's just, like, it's so bad. I know. It's so bad. It's, it's, Shame I know. on us. I mean, don't, don't, don't tell anyone. Like you should, like this is like a, the, the, the cat is at the bag. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's shame on us. What, what do we do? But... Why I raised the anti-Semitism point in relation to Iran is I wanted to connect this to the nuclear deal that the Americans. Mm -hmm. So so basically, Obama started the nuclear deal. Trump came. It was put in the side burner. And then again, 
Biden comes back and the nuclear deal is being discussed again. Now, suddenly this entire protest starts. And so it was very interesting. I was listening to a former CIA guy, Mike Baker on Joe Rogan. And he said, yeah, I don't think so. Biden's going to do it now, especially coming from uh, the current state of affairs in Iran. Signing a nuclear deal with them would kind of suck right now. They have to pretend that they don't like Iran. So I don't know. Also stupid. I mean, look, I I know... I'm just going to be Trump here. Uh, but I think that, look, without without being a Trumpist, uh, I would say that that was one of the best decisions that an American president could have made at the time to just get rid of it. Because you're talking, but, but you know, at the time that was true, but the notion that years and years down the line, you could then try to revive, you know, a deal, that makes no sense, completely redundant now, because... We were talking about, you know, enrichment at 30%. They are 70%. Now. What deal are you talking about? The bomb is already there. They can make it now. It's not going to be super practical. It's going to be clunky. It's going to take like, you know, I'm not saying that they can, you know, they can target the West. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in terms of the, the, the whole idea of the deal was to prevent for the technology to be acquired. The technology has been acquired. What deal do you want to sign? Is that telling someone you're pregnant, let me give you a contraceptive. What? It's too late. I mean, it's done. Like, you know, the, the person is pregnant. The contraceptive should have happened before, but it didn't. So there you go. Now we need to deal with the situation. But again, the notion that Biden is saying like, oh, you know, we might be considering, you know, reviving the, the negotiation. What negotiation? What are you going to negotiate? The color of the paper upon which you want to sign? What is it that you're doing? It's, it's, for me, it's just a ridiculous exercise in diplomacy that is giving people the impression that uh, Washington is actually remotely interested into, in, in peace in the Middle East, which it is not, because it's not doing anything towards it, um, and, and actually would much rather concentrate on hating on China. Even though China, in my mind, and I'm sure I'm going to be hated on for saying this, um, is not the most immediate threat that we're facing. I think that Russia and Iran are much bigger problem at present. And also, I would argue that China is a more rational enemy um, and that whatever upset we may have with China uh, could be sorted with a very robust strategy. Um, it's, not, it's not out of hand yet. Um, and there are, there's plenty of common ground. So there's, there's a lot could be done. Um, not saying it's not a problem, it is, that we need to address. But I think that when you have a nuclear, you know, um, Iran looking at us, I'd say that this is my biggest issue. Um, China can wait for just a second. Um, You know, Iran, no, we need to do something. But Washington is not interested. Washington is all about China right now. And the Islamic Republic, they're kind of washing their hands from it. Um, So. Yeah, but uh, so what do you think about the progress being made in the Trump regime with the peace deals with the Middle East, uh, all those happening. I mean, Trump did the Abraham Accords. You know, whether people, you know, people have this thing that they do is that if they don't like someone um, or a particular political party, whatever good that party is going to do does not matter. And and I think it's wrong. You need to judge people on what they do. Okay, what they say too, but what they do. And in this case, you know, Donald Trump gave us, you know, the scrapping of the JCPOA, which was a great development. Uh, also, during his presidency, Iran was was less of a problem. So it means that whatever strategy he decided to, um, you know, to keep worked to some extent. 
right? Uh, I think he bought it a few years. And then also the Abraham Accords, you can't take that away from him. They, no one can take this away. Uh, Obama did not do the Abraham Accord. Biden certainly didn't. Um, you know, Trump did. Trump did good. He did what everyone said was impossible. You know, when people talked about normalization between, for example, you know, the UAE and Israel, people were laughing, saying like, you're dreaming, you're a job. It's never going to happen. It's impossible. They hate each other, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, um, Donald Trump rolled into the White House. He appointed Jason Greenblatt, who's absolutely fantastic and marvelous uh, in my book. Um, and, you know, he, he then went on on this, you know, kind of um, campaign. Uh, to try to, uh, you know, to have a real discussion with Arab capitals. And it worked. It worked. Um, and, and I think, again, do you know when, I think that Donald Trump knew who to appoint and, and who was best to do that job. And, and again, I think that, you know, Jason Greenblatt was, um, was the architect of the Abraham Accord, as far as, far as I'm concerned. Um, and he had this amazing ability to listen to people. Um, and again, to find, you know, common ground and, and to show through immense respect uh, and tolerance and compassion um, that the future could be very different, that there, there was no need, um, you know, to continue all the hate, all the hate and, and to, um, to be locked into those dynamics that others created for us. Hmm. I want to talk to you about one more thing that I read. Uh, uh, you wrote this in the Jerusalem Post, if I remember correctly. Yes, you did. So it was on the Russian-Iranian axis. Uh, so yeah. can uh, what, what can you summarize that if you wanted? Because uh, before I start taking the viewers' questions, I wanted to talk about sure. that too. So what sure. what specifically about the Russian-Iranian type? Because the Indians and Russia, India and Russia have an old friendship. So I, I'm really interested in this one. Mm. Um, well, you know, Russia, Russia and the Islamic Republic... Um, have had uh, an ongoing friendship, you know, for going on a good 20 years. Um, and the, there's been, um, when Putin reached power, there was, um, you know, the, there was an envoy sent to, uh, to Tehran um, because I think that Putin understood that the, the ideology or at least how he envisioned, you know, um, legitimizing his, his own power and the trajectory that he wanted to follow was very much in line with that, the Islamic Republic in the way that it was formulated. Um, you know, the instruments that the Islamic Republic were using to coerce people, uh, you know, the misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, education system, how they were, you know, how they managed to, to kind of keep people within the mold. Um, Putin was was curious and interested and also for very obvious economic reasons. You know, uh, Russia always had an eye on the Islamic Republic, I mean, on Iran. Um, and so, you know, started a conversation with um, their respective chief propagandists. So essentially, um, you know, that that fr friendships were built there. Um, and over the years, it kind of manifested differently. Um, but obviously now with, I would say, you know, things have kind of, you know, moved forward, maybe at a faster pace with Ukraine. Um, I was just concerned. The reason why I wrote this article is because I was concerned that we were missing and misreading signals in the Middle East and that we were underplaying the relationship between Russia and the Islamic Republic, and that people were caught in this old, you know, um, the, the old idea that Russia was very much calling the shots, and that Russia had territorial ambitions within Iran, and that Iran was kind of like playing it on the back foot. Um, it's not the case. 
um, they see each other as partner. I'm not saying that Russia doesn't have, you know, an agenda, uh, you know, with, with Iran and vice versa. Um, but it, it's more to do with an alignment of ideology, um, which is quite interesting because that means that the the, um, the governance of the jurist is actually translated into the Christian world um, and into the West. There's a danger there because it means that they've been able to kind of like, you know, um, transpose uh, their vision, their political vision. That That bothers me. Uh, also, the fact that there's military cooperation. Now, again, when I talk about military cooperation, I don't want people to misunderstand me and, and suddenly say that, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic is like military superpower and that, you know, we're all in danger. No, what I'm saying is that what they're trying to do is to project a sense of strength, that they are trying to bully our Western capitals by saying we have an access, a military access against you. The last time that happened, I think we have bad case of PTSD, you know, with Hitler. And the fact that, again, the blocks were being formed. Um, we need to be careful because I know they're playing into this. They, they're playing into all fears. Um, and again, we should not discount it. It's there. We need to be careful. Um, and it should, I mean, it's intolerable that, for example, Iran is sending drones to, to Ukraine to be used against innocent civilian. We should not tolerate this. At the same time, we should not understand this as like, oh, my God, Iran is sharing, you know, military technology with, with Russia. We're talking about very clunky, you know, drones that can't do much other than obviously so fear within civilian populations. And it's a form of psychological warfare by, you know, relentlessly aggressing them. Um, but but again, it's not tolerable. And um, I think also that we should read into this as this desire that Islamic Republic to, to protect that it's doing fine, everything is good, look at us, we're sending drones you know, outside the country, we're doing good. No, they're not, they're teetering on the edge. Uh, and the reason why they feel the need to kind of um, externalize their power is because they're not doing so good within their borders. And that it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an attempt to um, change the narrative, to foment chaos somewhere else so that people would not so much be troubled by what's happening within Iran. Um, and it has worked in the past. And also, I think there's an attempt to generate some kind of a conflict, whether regional or not. Um, because the last time that happened, Iran was able to consolidate its position within its borders. Um, for example, if Saddam Hussein had not attacked Iran when it did in the 1980s, um, the Islamic Republic would have most likely died uh, and would have been rejected by the people. But because the people were at war, um, you know, they had to keep, kind of give it up to the leadership and say, well, you know, you deal with it because, you know, that we have Iraq is literally bo bombing us. So, you know, we, we're not in the mood of being revolutionary right now and we can't afford it. Um, so there's a danger. And also, obviously, you know, the notion that the Islamic Republic continue to, to perpetuate that, you know, there are greater enemies out there, mainly Israel and America. Um, and so a conflict with those powers would be very handy. Uh, because you could then rally around the Shia Muslim world saying, we are the state of war, Islam is on the line, you know, um, come and help us, come and save us. That's basically what they're trying to do. Um, it's complicated. It's complicated. But Russia is definitely playing an interesting role within that. Um, and I think that Putin envisioned himself as the, the Russian Ayatollah if that makes sense, in that the kind of powers that he wants to claim for himself. And also, how does he legitimize his position and his claim? I mean, he's president right now. Uh, he can't be president forever, can he? So he's going to have to kind of upgrade. And I think that 
you know, looking at the way that the Ayatollahs have done it, she might be thinking it's not a bad idea. And he has increasingly used the Orthodox Church to legitimize his position um, and also sell, you know, the war in Ukraine as a, as a holy crusade for the Orthodox Church. So it, again, interesting and very dangerous if it becomes normalized. Mm. Well, maybe Putin can take inspiration from Xi Jinping and become <laughs> president for life. Uh, so he he, he has knows? a role model there. He has Who a role knows? model there. All right, let's let's take some some questions before we wrap it up. So, so this question takes us right back to the topic. It says uh, basically, I think it, this was asked when we were talking about pluralism. So, how does one talk about pluralism in in societies where Islamism is pretty much top down being shoved so because aren't they like literally opposed to each other in a scenario like this um uh, iran in that sense i'll add to this question is is a complex society like people always tell me oh gender uh, surgery in iran is legalized but people only share that part they don't share the part why it is legalized because it's a highly homophobic society it yeah. could not tolerate that, so they legalized. Exactly, gender, exactly. Gender but I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I mean I've heard people making the argument before, um, you know that you know Iran was such a, a modern society and forward thinking for allowing it. I was like, well, there's a caveat. It's not. It's not. They're not doing it because they want people to have the freedom, uh, you know, to to decide for themselves, how, you know, what they want to do with their body. It has to do with you know abiding by a certain. Um, certain rules and, and then obviously they, they don't want to admit that homosexuality is actually a thing. Um, and so, you know, they, they often actually forcing people to have gender reassignment surgery by telling them what well, it's easy. So we, we're going to have to just like shove you from a building. So it's not exactly, um, I don't know. I don't think it's very tolerant. Um, you know, people should be given a choice, but Hey, that's me. Yeah. Well, so, so basically fundamentally that it, there is a problem between pluralism and Islamism, which I, uh, I, I don't think, think yeah, I don't think they go well together. I, mean, I don't think you could use them in the same sentence either. Um, you know, Islamists are not tolerant of other people's views. I mean, they don't. They don't. Again, any form of criticism leveled at them is an act against God, therefore passable of death. So, how can you have pluralism within that? I mean, you could have maybe variants of, of Islamism if that pluralism would mean for them, but that would be it. Like, you know, in Iran, you have the reformists and this and the that, but they pretty much are, you know, saying the same thing, except that they want to they wanna use different, you know, colors to do it, different tones. Uh, but ultimately, the language, the narrative is the same, and, you know, it, it leads to um, authoritarianism. Um, so pluralism doesn't exist in Iran. Mm. Do you think, someone has asked, do you think Iran was a democracy before the Shah was installed or put there by the West? Iran never really had a democracy. It had attempted. It, it, it was on its way to. Now, look, when we talk about the monarchy, it's tricky because you can't deny that under the Shah, the last Shah, uh, that Iran was undergoing incredible reforms, that it was being modernized. And that also, um, uh, as a king, he, you know, he abolished the, the feudal system that Iranians were under and, and allowed millions of people to have access to free education, which they didn't have before. Um, so to some extent, I would say, because he was interrupted, 
that you know he was i think he was moving the country towards you know a, con a constitutional monarchy very similar to what we have in 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 the uk um mm -hmm. but he was interrupted so it's very difficult for people to say well you know they had a shot and you know they didn't have any freedom but that's not true it started off with very little freedoms but then you know the, the shah came and kind of like you know he was going towards that um and again it was interrupted by the islamic republic so we'll never know you know where that road would have led um but also we need to understand that because iran was opened up so much in the 1940s 50s 60s 70s to the rest of the world in that you know students you know went to harvard and yale university in the uk and france and you know they went everywhere uh, and they learned um, and so I think that the idea was for them to come back and then started this this kind of conversation around, you know, democracy and, you know, the economy and society and how do we move forward and that, what is it that we do that would work, you know, within our traditions and our history. Um, and I think things were happening. You were this kind of like, you know, enlightenment that that was pioneered by the Shah. If he, if he didn't make this available, it would not have happened. So I want to be careful and say that I think the Shah was actually quite democratic in his ambitions, that he didn't have the time to implement it, but also that we shouldn't get bogged down by the fact that, you know, democracy in our minds can only exist if you have, you know, it, under a Republican system, for example. I think that democracy could mean different things for different people at different times. Um, and that, again, my experience as a Westerner, you know, born in France, raised in, you know, child of the Republic, uh, my experience, my understanding, my wants for myself in terms of what do I understand as a democracy is very different from someone in Iran, for example. And that my experience is not, or my wants are not better or higher or more, you know, idealistic than that of an Iranian who might want the return of the Shah, who might want a republic, who might want, I don't know. It's not for me to decide. Um, so I need, we need to be very careful and, uh, and actually get, you know, our... Um, definitions quite clear about what that means, but were people doing better under the Shah? Certainly, um, they were getting there, and I think that because they didn't have they didn't have time to have that conversation, um, you know, Islamists you know arrived, um, then they got interrupted. But also, when we talk about democracy and democratic advancement, you have to understand that people need to be educated to get there. It doesn't just happen in a day. People need to understand what that means, and not everyone can exercise you know, the democratic right, just because somebody just shove it, shove it down their throat and say, now you can go, and, can go and vote. We tried in Yemen and it didn't work. People can't read and write. So you need to first educate people. You need to make them understand, you know, those are your rights. What do you want to do with them? So they could formulate, you know, something, for, for a want for themselves. Uh, until you do this, it's impossible. Democracy will fail. We tried in the Middle East. It didn't happen. Um, so we need to learn. And I think Iranians are extremely sophisticated, very well-educated, um, they have a history that spans thousands of years, so that they're literally older than than than, than the West. Um, you know, um, I think if anything, they have a thing or two to teach us, except that they were interrupted by a violent, abominable government, the Islamic Republic, um, and they got stuck. Fair enough. All right. So this question is: Assuming the regime is ousted and IRGC and Bonyad, the Islamic charity. Uh, influences removed from Iranian society mm -hmm. and the economy by the new government, would it result in a situation similar to what happened in Iraq or it could even go worse? Well, it all depends about what happens after. 
obviously. So once the regime is gone, RHC is gone, dismantled, you know, outlawed, um, banned, dissolved, disappeared. Um, Iran is an extremely wealthy country with incredible resources, incredible opportunities. Um, and it would be down to the next government to do something with it and about it. Um, now, do I have a crystal ball? Can I tell you? Yes, it's going to be fantastic. I hope so. I hope so, because I think Iranians deserve, um, you know, a little bit of happiness and also a brighter future. Um, do I do I believe that they will? Yes, because I do trust them. I trust that they've seen, look, they face horror and, and evil for, for decades now. So they know what it looks like. Um, I don't think that anyone will will be able to ensnare them ever again. Um, not at least for a very long time. I think they, they've learned so much and suffered through so much um, that I would imagine that Iran would be in the next decade, decade a, a brilliant country. Um, you know, it, it's going to thrive and flourish. And, and I think that, uh, you know, people will be proud once more, you know, to call Iran home um, and, and to be able to be free. I really believe that. I want to believe that. Um, but it all depends on, you know, what happens next. And my fear is that if that if we do not empower Iranians and allow them to again move forward and and you know succeed in getting rid of this regime and having the democracy that they want and the democracy that they deserve, that we're going to have a you know an Islamic regime 2.0. We had it in Afghanistan. We need to be careful. Um, and the only way to secure a better future for Iranians is to empower Iranians and not tell them what to do, not try to you know to stir you know, them right or left or whatever, but to empower them, accompany them and listen to what is it that they are telling us and, and, and the many ways that they're asking for our help. That's what we need to do, to, you know, to ask them, what is it that I can do for you? And then give it and, and not, not try to push, you know, and to say, oh, I think you should do this. No, no, no. Iran is, again, it's a very sophisticated society. They are well-educated. They can decide for themselves. You know, they, they, they have, I mean, they have brilliant minds. In this country, most of them are in Evin prison, unfortunately, right now, um, which is why they can't speak. Um, but they don't need our advice in moving forward. They can do it themselves. Um, you know, it's just hopefully, hopefully the West will back off a bit. But right now, the West is not doing enough. Uh, and that's my main problem. So um, now the West is just more pre preoccupied with um, empty words and promises, but not so much actions on the ground. And I think it comes from covetous. Fair enough. That's, that's my assessment. So someone has asked, uh, if you had to make an educated guess, what percentage of Iranian common people really support the Ayatollah Islamist regime? And what percentage are just people seeking <clears throat> their own version? I'm not saying the Western version of democracy, their own version of a democracy. Are there any surveys that have actually been done? No, but... Um... My research tells me that about 20, 25% um, of the country supports the Islamic Republic in one way or another. Uh, now, within this, this, you know, this percentage, you need to understand that a lot of people are supporting the Islamic Republic, not out of ideology, uh, but because it's, it's safer for them to do so in terms of having access to certain, you know, certain social privileges, for example, you know, health, education, uh, things like that, being paid a salary. Uh, you know, there are economic realities um, that bear very heavy on, on that percentage. <clears throat> but in terms of ideology, um, I would say that except for a few lunatics, uh, most most people within the regime actually don't believe a word that they, you know, 
what they what is it what they say. Very few people actually believe in the, in the whole you know governance of the jurists and uh, this version of Shia Islam that they created. Uh, it's more to do with you know personal interest and the fact that you know it, having power is is quite is quite seductive and you know however they justify that power and rationalize it to you know to the to the population um they don't really care they will say whatever they would say that the easter bunny sitting on the throne eating you know sunday ice cream every sunday if they had to to maintain power they would um so it's not that they believe so much what they believe is is um is that the ideology is serving them there's a difference so it's not so much the content of it it's the fact that it works um and also allows them to um, to rally the troops around in terms of, you know, other Muslim country, um, you know, positioning themselves as a great defender um, of the Islamic faith. Um, and you can see this a lot with the Palestinian cause, how the Islamic Republic, who didn't really care about Palestinians before, and actually never done anything for Palestinians per se, in terms of, you know, humanitarian aid or whatever. Um, it's, they, they understood it was a political weapon and an ideological weapon that they could use to take the shine away from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is home to the two holy cities of Islam, you know, Mecca and Medina. And so Saudi Arabia became the custodian of those two holy cities, giving Saudi Arabia this, you know, very prominent status within the Islamic world and, you know, the, the Middle Eastern region. And Iran was after this. Ayatollah Khomeini wanted to take that mantle away from Saudi Arabia, claim it for himself and say he was the guardian of Islam. And the best way he could do it was to create, um, you know, was through the Palestinian cause by positioning himself as the great defender of Palestine and therefore Al-Aqsa Mosque, playing into this religious tradition that, you know, Jesus will return um, to Al-Aqsa and that therefore he had to be under Muslim rule. Um, and also somewhat linking a person's exercise of the Muslim faith as in, are you a good Muslim? How can you be a good Muslim if you don't support the Palestinian cause? And linking this in opposition to in a rejection of Israel, other than say, you could be, being a good Muslim had nothing to do with Palestinians, um, but to actually defend and to be actually pro-Palestinian entails being pro-Israeli. And that it's not a zero-sum game. That you, you could do both. You could be, you know, you could be pro-Palestinians, but that means being pro-Israeli and vice versa. The two are not, you know, mutually exclusive. Um, because if you want the two people to live side by side, you have to support them together. You can't say that one is better than the other or one has rights and the other hasn't. It's, it doesn't work this way. So you have to admit that you have two people facing an incredibly complex problem, but that hate will not help. Division will not help. And certainly saying that one has right to exist while the other needs to go back to the chambers, it's not productive and will not happen, cannot happen. You can't say things like that. Yeah, obviously the death to Israel bit is not helping the case either. It's abominable. Uh, and the yeah. fact that people in, in the West, you know, still engage with the Republic and somewhat sanction that kind of language, it's just beyond me because it, it, it irks me. Uh, because this language has should have should not exist anymore you can't you can't you can't call for a genocide of an entire people on the basis of the ethnicity or but i don't care you know political belief religious belief it doesn't matter and and the regime has got away with it by saying oh we don't you know we mean israel as in like the zionist entity as opposed to no, i don't care how you meant it or how you're trying to explain it to the rest of the world you cannot 
say things like that. Can you imagine if, for example, someone in the UK was to say, death to the French because they're stealing our fish? Mm. It would be an out, no, there would be an outcry, you know, at the United Nations, the media will go nuts. When the Islamic Republic says it, you can't say anything, are you going to upset them? I don't care. I mean, we have certain standards and principles. I mean, you cannot say things like that. Well, obviously, you should not say things like that. But <clears throat> the way things are these days, you can say anything pretty much as long as you have the right people to cover. And which is why common sense uh, has been lost. So so how do uh, I guess how do Iranians then go about go about this? Then this is the last question before we wrap it up. Like, do they have a government in exile? How do they go about it? Like, it's complicated. Uh, it's just, um, you know, I keep, to, to be honest with you, I don't have an answer. I would love to, because then I would just go on Twitter and tell them, you, you know, here you go. <laughs> Take it, go. Um, oh my God, Catherine, how dare you say you don't have an answer in the day of I, social I, media I, expertise? Well, first of all, I'm not Iranian. So um, as far as answers go, it's not for me to find. I mean, do, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Is that, it's not I, like know, I, I, know. I do, I do care. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that it's not my problem to fix in that, I don't want to be arrogant. I don't want to tell them what to do because I'm not Iranian. I haven't lived an Iranian life. Therefore, how could I have an opinion? Um, I'm conscious of that. I, I, I don't. I, of course, I have opinions, and I think that there's certain things that we could explore. Um, it's hard because what, what do you do? So you have, I mean, technically speaking, you still have, um, you know, the royal family that could, you know, that I believe should have a role to play within this because they are the guardian of a, of, of a certain tradition that does matter because if you want to move forward, you need to look in the past and, and, and use what you have to make sure that you have very solid foundation. You can't just create a system and hope that it's going to take. Um, so it's important that, you know, the monarchy, or at least like Iranians need to have a conversation with the monarchy because they were the last one, you know, taking care of the country. So I think that they have at least... a one or two advice to give, I think, in terms of like how should they, they should go about doing it. Um, obviously, you have the issue of the constitution in Iran. Um, can we make the argument that it's not legal and legitimate um, by making the argument that it was injured consent, that people were lied to in the referendum? You know, they were promised for electricity, for housing, for whatever. Um, and so, you know, obviously people and also people at the time were not as literate as they are right now. So again, internet consent, is it legal and legitimate, legitimate as far as the international community is concerned? In which case, we could very easily say, well, we do not recognize you know, the government of Iran anymore. We will you know, get rid of their representative diplomats and outposts uh, from our capitals because they have you know, no room. And you know, we need to create a government in exile. But then the next question is, who would sit on that government in exile? Because again, most political you know, activists and all the, the, the people that have formulated solutions for what happens next are sitting in Evan prison. Those are the core of the like, you know, intellectual, political Iran, those people who are best, I would say, equipped uh, and have popular legitimacy because they have you know, people are following them, supporting them, listening to them, believing in them, wanting them um, you know, to continue what they're doing. Um, now you have, obviously, the Iranian diaspora. But the argument could be made, you know, how, how divorced are they from what is happening in Iran? Um, when someone has spent 40 years in exile, how connected are they to the everyday, you know, oppression that Iranians have endured? And are they, 
the best carrier of popular legitimacy, understanding that they haven't lived through what Iranians have lived through. And I'm not saying that it's their fault that they should feel guilty about it. What I'm saying is that that conversation that we need to have. So maybe we need to have a balance of the two. Um, it's complicated, but until we actually have some kind of a task force set up saying, let's have this conversation, let's you know throw things on paper, let's discuss them, um, and actually maybe use the power of social media to tell Iranians, you know, can we can we have some kind of an informal you know referendum? What do you guys want? Like, what structure are we looking at? Like, what do you want us to help you with? Maybe that's the better question. Um, then I, my answer is I don't know. I don't know. We could, you know, we could look into history and say, well, those things have worked in the past. We could also say, well, those things definitely didn't. So um, can we tweak them? Can we make them better? Can we learn? Yeah, we need to have a conversation. But I don't, I don't have, I, I wish I had a solution. I don't have one because I, I don't know. I, I'd love to have a magic wand and say, first, I'd like the regime to go. But I'm also conscious that if it goes, we're going to have a, a power vacuum and that's the most dangerous thing to have. Um, and so we need to be, we need to be careful. But also, how you, how do you justify being careful and cautious and taking, you know, a long time to discuss things when people are dying? There's a sense of urgency. Uh, human life is on the line. Um, I personally, you know, um, think that human life is um, is is precious. One life is too many to, to be lost. Um, and it's very difficult for me to justify waiting when people are dying right now, today, yesterday. Um, I, I don't know how to do that. So it's a problem. Well, uh, see, which is which is very unlike usually uh, how people behave on social media. Social media is a place where everybody is an expert on everything and they have a solution for everything. So, <laughs> so, so basically broken social media protocol um, i'm sorry i'm sorry i i i you know, i tend to disappoint people sometimes because they expect me to say certain things i'm like no i just don't no want you to. should not and that that's the right thing to do honest i'm just yeah. sorry it is the right thing no i i understand i was just joking say like, i i wish more people had uh, epistemic humility uh the world needs more of epistemic humility the kind of certainty with which i see people opine on things on social media on everything like in the morning they're talking about cricket then then in the evening on politics and then in between if there's nothing else they're talking about food and with the the certainty with which they they speak on everything is is just mind blowing. Like the whole thing that I started with this podcast was I was like I don't know things, so let me talk to people who happen to know more in those um, those areas than I do. I think I think that makes you a smart person. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I think it does. Curious, I think definitely. No, well, look, I you can't, first of all you can't be an expert on everything, um, and also um, I think that. A sign of intelligence is to actually question and, and, and admit that uh, you don't know everything. Most likely, don't know a lot. Yeah, most people don't. And and, and I wish most people realize that, but they don't. But before we wrap it up, uh, Catherine, uh, any other new projects that you're working on that you would like to tell everybody about? Uh, well, there's, there's quite a few things, actually. Um, I'm doing a research paper on the Islamic Republic when I'm, I'm looking at um, you know the, ideolo the ideology of, of the regime, but also... Um, the various instruments that it's actually using to perpetuate and consolidate its position within the ideology. Um, because Iran, um, a friend of mine actually coined that, that, um, that expression, um, is, um, is very modern in the way that it's enacting authoritarianism. 
and playing it out. Um, so I'm going to have to give it up to, to Ben Tallebleu from, uh, from FTT in the US. Um, we had a panel discussion yesterday on I-24 and he was talking about this and I agree with him. Um, there's something so modern about the way that this new form of authoritarianism is being formulated and carried out. Um, that I thought it was necessary to look into it um, mm -hmm. and to try to, to kind of get an understanding of what we're looking at. Um, because obviously, even if tomorrow morning the Islamic Republic is no more, um, you know, certain tools have been utilized uh, to indoctrinate people and, and maintain them in a, in, in a state of you know, subservience. Um, and I think it's important that we look into it just and study it to learn how to prevent it and also you know, what to do when it happens. Um, so yeah, so I'm doing this and I'm working on, on various projects. Like I have a, an event coming up in parliament on the 24th um, where we're going to discuss the politics of anti-Semitism, which I think is actually quite relevant to the kind of conversation that we were having on anti-Hinduism in the UK. Um, because, you know, there, there is one thing to say about what I say, like overt anti-Semitism when people are, you know, very aggressive on social media, very openly, um, you know, anti-Semitic, but also how certain actors, you know, whether, you know, act, um, interest groups, political actors, uh, political parties, um, are using certain language and playing into a certain narrative um, to, you know, isolate certain demographic. Um, and, you know, Russia, for example, has used anti-Semitism uh, to justify, you know, uh, its intervention in Ukraine, certain things. Um, you know, the Palestinian uh, authorities have certainly played into it. Um, the Islamic Republic has used it. Um, and, you know, various actors, you know, whether left or right, by the way, um, and so, um, you know, I, I thought that it was a it was a good kind of cornerstone event to to kind of, you know, look into the politics of anti-Semitism, but also understand that it doesn't stop at anti-Semitism, that there's a there's a trend in the UK that is rather worrying in terms of the politics of othering. Um, and so hopefully it's it's a first to kind of lead to like a, a body of work into um, into research into, you know, various othering and, and of course anti-Hinduism is, is part of that. So um, hopefully we could have further conversation around that and I could, because uh, I'm not an expert uh, on that, um, but I definitely want to look into it and see if um, we, could do, um, we could do some work there and, and hopefully change things. Yeah, I, I, I look forward to working with you in that uh, area too. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to, uh, maybe when the paper comes out, do let me know. I will definitely read this. And I like reading things. I, I That's pretty much what my life is, reading books. So once again, Catherine, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. It my pleasure. It pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for the invitation. And uh, thank you for everyone out there, you know, for bearing with us. Hmm. all right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up but once again before i wrap today's discussion it doesn't matter if you're listening to the audio version of this on spotify or itunes or you're list watching this on youtube in the description of the podcast i have uh, Catherine's uh, henry jackson society profile link you can go and check it there you can read all her life you can also go on jerusalem post and you can read her uh, articles there too or you can follow her on twitter as far as i'm concerned you know the drill subscribe to the charvak podcast youtube channel like this video leave a comment and if you can support this podcast please become a member either on youtube or patreon or on fanmo or buy the merchandise or send your donations to upi i'll see you guys next time again with another new guest until then take care bye Thank you.